would love to read for us our passage for this morning. It is Psalm 51. So if you'd like to turn there with me in a a Bible or a smart device um, or just listen, that's great as well. Psalm 51, a Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Uh, If you're new to Scarlet City, thank you for joining us. My name is Jay. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here, and we're delighted to have you as our guest, and we'd love to connect with you after our worship gathering. Well, I want to open with a question this morning. How can we thrive in a world that is both beautiful and broken? How can we flourish in a world of joy and in a world of sorrow? How can we thrive? How can we find wholeness in a world that is beautiful yet broken? How can we move forward and not just survive, but actually thrive in a world where there's mass murder? This is fundamentally what our church is about. Our vision is rooted in how we can thrive in life in a beautiful yet broken world. And this is what the Psalms are all about. We've been walking through a number of Psalms. Psalms is a collection of 150 different poems and songs and prayers that reflect how to walk with God in a beautiful, 
yet broken world. And so there's psalms that make sense for this. We have psalms of lament, where we cry out to God and we acknowledge the pain of life. And we've looked at a few of those psalms. Last week, Derek preached about suffering and how to live in light of the pain of this world. This morning, we want to look at a psalm that we often do not equate with thriving in a beautiful yet broken world, but I promise you it is very much at the core of how we can thrive in the pain of life. This morning, we're looking at what is often called a penitential psalm, and there are seven of them in the collection of psalms in the Bible. And a penitential psalm is a psalm of confession, a psalm, a a prayer of repentance. And when you hear the word repent, what comes to mind? When you hear repentance or repent, what what do you think of? Uh, Often, uh, most of us, unfortunately, when we think of repent, we have someone else in mind. (laughs) Maybe when you hear repent, you're thinking of a worldly person, a person who's struggling to be godly. And so in your mind, you want them to know their sin. And if they would repent, then the world would be a better place. Uh, Maybe when you think of repent, you think of someone on the corner when you're walking to a concert or a sporting event with a megaphone and a sign that's yelling at everybody to repent. Maybe that's what comes to mind for you. I was taking Bennett and Jack, our two boys, to a Reds game because the Reds are God's team. (laughs) Praise the Lord. We had a setback last night against the Braves. Rob, it was close, but, you know, it's hard. But we're going to the Reds game because I'm a good father, and I want to take them to a sporting event, a baseball game. And so I took them. And as we're walking, getting close to the stadium, they're looking across the corner, and there's someone with a megaphone, another person with a loud uh, uh, a sign that's saying, repent. And there was confusion and, and a little bit of fear. Repent, what does that mean, Dad? What, what, what are they talking about? And, and, of course, I've just become used to this kind of behavior, so I'm just like, ignore it. You know, don't worry about that, you know. And, and, but for them, you know, hell, what, what is this about? Repent. Many of us, when we think of repent, we think of someone else. Maybe a religious person or a quote-unquote worldly person. This morning, I want to ask you to have the courage when, as we talk about repentance to think about yourself. And I know that I'm asking a hard thing because it is easier when we think about sin and repentance, to think of someone else. It is, it is easier to think, man, my spouse, really, I hope they're paying attention. And if they're not here, I'm going to send them the link at the end. I, you know, it's, it's easier to think about a spouse or a friend or someone from another political party or religious people. It's easier to think of someone else. And what I'm asking is that we would have the courage this morning as we talk about repentance to think about it personally. What does God want to teach me? And this is very much important because genuine repentance leads to genuine wholeness. We talk about thriving and wholeness in life. Repentance must be a practice. 
And so this morning, let's, let's look there. Let's dive right in. How genuine repentance can lead to genuine wholeness in your life and my life. And, and we begin, we need to talk about what is genuine repentance. These are terms, concepts that are very foreign to us in our culture. And so I think we need to be very clear. What is genuine repentance? And first, we see that genuine repentance sees and grieves personal sin. Genuine repentance both sees and it grieves personal sin. David, who wrote this psalm and this prayer, he says in verse 3, he says, My sin, not your sin, not the prophet Nathan's sin, who we'll talk about in a moment, not other sin, my sin is ever before me. And then in verse 4, he says, I have done what is evil in your sight, in God's sight. Now, what is sin? What is, what, the concept of sin, what, what, what is this? It's very important that we be clear about our terms. I think there's two things I want to highlight as it relates to sin. What is sin? Sin, first of all, is anti-human flourishing behavior. It are, it are actions, words, behavior that goes against God's desire for human wholeness and flourishing. It's not just breaking arbitrary rules. Oftentimes we think of this, that God, that there is fun over here and God over here and God's like, you know, I don't want you to have fun. So I'm going to give you rules that limit fun. And so we think we have to make a choice between living a flourishing and fun and happy life and doing the right thing, because that's the godly thing. We're not going to smile. No, God is for your fun. God is for your joy and your happiness. He's pro-human flourishing, and sin contradicts that way of living. But sin is much deeper than just anti-human flourishing behavior. Sin, at its core, when you trace the behavior down, it is anti-God worship. It is idolatry. It is Placing someone or something in God's place. It is, a, it is a life apart from faith. It's not just doing wrong things, but it's doing right things with selfish motivation. The Bible treats sin in a, as a nuanced way of believing and behaving. It is anti-human flourishing. It is anti-God worship. And so, in our context, because we're looking at a prayer offered by David, what sin did he have in mind? Again, he says, my sin is ever before me, my transgressions. He's taking ownership. He has a very specific situation in mind. In fact, the, the heading of the psalm, you may look at it, it says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. There's a particular story that is informing this particular prayer. And the story goes like this. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uriah was one of David's closest friends and allies. Uriah was a man who, when King Saul was trying to kill David, went with David into the wilderness. He was one of a number of men who tried to protect David, who gave their life for David to protect him. Uriah was a friend, a man who loved David to the point that he was willing to sacrifice for him. And David, on one occasion when Uriah was off in battle, 
he sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And David lusts after her and has men go and bring her into his palace. And he has an affair. And she gets pregnant. And David here, upon hearing the news that she's pregnant, there are a number of ways he could have responded. He could have repented right there. He could have turned away from this. He could have acknowledged and seen his sin and turned toward God. But he, as often happens when we're in sin, he tries to cover it up. And the first way he tries to cover it up is he has Uriah come back from battle. And he meets with Uriah, and he asks him the story of what's happening on the battlefield and, you know, placating to the situation. Tell me what's going on. But really, David knows why he's here. And David keeps him with him the entire day so that Uriah is unable to go back to battle. And he encourages Uriah to go home. Go home, eat, have a meal, drink, and sleep with your wife, Uriah. I'm for you. Go home. And Uriah, though, he responds. Uriah says to David, he says this, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, who was his commander in the army, and the servants of my lord are campaigning in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to live with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah was a man of such character that when his brothers were in battle, he he couldn't stomach just going home and being with his wife. So he, sit, he sleeps outside on his front lawn, unwilling to go and spend time with his wife, whom I'm sure he would have loved to be with. And David, upon seeing that Uriah is unwilling to participate unknowingly in his plan to cover up his sin, takes another tactic. And he sends Uriah back into battle with a letter. Uriah carries in his hand a letter that he hands to Joab, the commander of the army, that that instructs Joab to put Uriah on the front line in battle, and then for Joab to pull back the other forces so that Uriah will be killed. And that's what happens. And upon hearing of Uriah's death, David then brings Bathsheba into his home to be his wife, and they have a son. And time goes by, and David thinks everything's okay. He's covered it up. People might not know. And then a man named Nathan, a prophet, comes. And, and, and Nathan preaches probably one of the greatest sermons in the history of the world. And Nathan, Nathan shares a story with David. He says, there was a man, a rich man, who had many flocks. And there was a poor man with no flock, just one lamb. One little lamb. And the lamb was like a daughter to him. He held the lamb. He cherished the lamb. He would sleep with the lamb in his arms. But the rich man took the poor man's one lamb, stole it, took it to his home, slaughtered it, and offered it as a meal for his guests. And then Samuel records David's response. David's angry. It says that it was, he, uh, David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to David, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's saying, who is this man? Bring him to me. And Nathan's response. Oh, man, it cut. His response, you are the man. 
You are the man, David. And David, to his credit, responds in repentance. Responds, what have I done? I have sinned against the Lord. And and what is our point here? What are we trying to say? David, he commits a huge sin. I mean, there's no denying. I've met with a lot of people, counseled people. I've never counseled someone on, on this level of a grievous of a sin. I mean, David basically commits them all. He's lazy, not going to battle. He's lusting. He commits adultery. He's deceitful and covering up, has someone murdered, and uses his power to abuse others. This is a very significant sin. So is, our, is the, the lesson here, man, I can feel a little bit better about my sin in light of what David's done. No. No. I mean, let's be honest. You know, no, none of us are at this position that David is in to commit this type of sin. When you're in a position of power like David, it presents unique opportunities. And so the question for you and I, I think the lesson is not how can we look at the sin of another person to feel a little bit better about ourselves, but what are the ways that we've covered up sin in our life? What are the ways that we've used the little amount of power that we've had to hurt another person? What are the ways we've used anger and responded to situations that we don't like in ways that take away from the humanity of another person? Have we sinned? And when we sin and we've been confronted with it, when God's brought a Nathan into our life, are we willing like David to see it and to grieve it? Genuine repentance sees sin and it grieves sin, not just the consequences. David's chief lament is fear that the presence of God will be taken away from him. David grieves the loss of God's presence. David grieves this this sin, not just the consequences of being caught in it. Genuine sin sees and it grieves personal sin, but also it doesn't stay there. Genuine repentance, it turns. It turns towards God's redeeming love. In the text, David begins, verse 1, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Have mercy on God according to my genuine confession. Have mercy on God according to my good behavior. I'm, I'm, I'm done. That's in the past, God. Only holiness. Now, now he says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. According to your love, God. Your redeeming love. Not, a, not according to my behavior. Not according to even my repentance. According to your steadfast love. And this, the term here, steadfast love, We talk about this a lot at Scarlet City. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which talks about God's covenant-keeping, faithful love. David, he goes on. One way he puts it in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop here, it goes back to Exodus 12. It was 
a plant that was used to be dipped into the sacrificial lamb's blood and put above the covering of a home so that God's judgment would pass over. David is looking back. He's looking back at God's deliverance in Egypt. And he's saying, I need a covering God. In the same way that you covered over sin through blood, I need a covering. I need your love. I need your mercy. I have sinned in your sight, God. I need your grace and mercy. And today we look back. We look back at the cross. And Jesus' death on the cross in our place so that we could experience God's covenant-keeping love. The author of Hebrews dives right into this point. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author is wanting to articulate how Jesus' sacrifice radically transforms our life. And they put it this way. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we can approach God's presence, we can go to the temple, we can experience presence with God through the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Hear this, in full assurance not partial assurance, but full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. What the author is wanting to get to is this. You can enter the presence of God not through your just repentance not through your good behavior, but faith in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, this point really was hammered home to me in a very, very personal way. I grew up in church, and so I heard a lot of sermons, was a part of a lot of altar calls, and I, I just grasped in some way that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I needed forgiveness to be, to be really honest with you, I was one of the people that I wanted to have. I thought wholeness was about having fun, and God was anti-fun. And so I wanted to live a self-centered life. And I thought God was against this, you know, that God was, you know, he would lecture at me, he would look at me and say, Jay, you know, gosh, you are just a failure. <laughs> Come repent, embrace my salvation, and don't be a failure anymore. And it wasn't until I was in college having a conversation with a friend. His name was John Mark. And, and I'm, tr- I'm talking, and in these situations, I would use, you know, like God words, like I need to, you know, walk the straight and narrow. And, you know, and, and he, he saw that I did not understand the gospel. That really what my view was, I prayed and I would be saved. And then I would, you know, I trusted in God's work there, but then it was up to my work to keep my salvation, to earn it. And he looked at me, and I will never forget. He said, do you know, if your faith is in Jesus, when he looks at you, when God looks at you, he sees the finished work of your son. And that, that just crushed me. You see, because that brought me into a whole new way of relating to God. Not where God was anti-fun and what. No, but God was for my well-being. And now a whole new motivation in life was unleashed. 
a motivation to live in light of this grace, this love to respond to God, not out of fear and just guilt and wanting to escape his wrath and judgment, but responding by pursuing noble endeavors, pursuing God, loving others. It unleashed a whole new way of living. And so genuine repentance, friends, genuine repentance is both seeing and grieving our sin, but it is also turning and seeing everything in light of God's redeeming love. Now, now, how does that lead to wholeness? Why is practicing repentance, why should it be one of the crucial foundational behaviors and practices of our life? I want to close with just a few ways how it brings wholeness, how we should be a people that see and grieve our sin and turn and look and rest in God's redeeming work. First, how genuine repentance leads to genuine wholeness. You and I, we have an authority for justice and wholeness in our life. When we embrace a life of repentance, we now are embracing a life that looks to God as the authority for how we should live. David, in verses 1 through 4, he is talking about his sin, and he uses three terms to describe it. He says, my transgressions. He says, blot out my transgressions. A transgression, this idea here is just open rebellion. This is premeditated sinful behavior. In verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And this is the concept of being found guilty of a crime. It's not that I've just done a thing I shouldn't, but I'm, I am guilty and deserve judgment. He says, cleanse me from my sin. And this is the, the, the Hebrew idea is missing the mark. And then in verse 4, he builds to this. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you, God. Have I sinned? Now, when David says, against you and you only have I sinned, is he saying that his sin has not offended or hurt anyone else? No, of course he's not saying that. David would have been fully aware of the implications of his sin, but David is getting to the core that he understands this behavior, what he has done, is first and foremost an affront to a God who has been merciful to him. Now, there is a tension here, and a tension in our culture when we talk about sin. And, and many today, even probably maybe you felt this, many Western readers, when we start talking about sin, there's, it makes us feel uneasy. Because it's, it's not because, and, and oftentimes religious-minded people look at non-religious-minded people and they strawman them. And they make assumptions about their behavior that just build themselves up, and we should not do this, friends. But the assumption can go like this. You know, non-religious people, they don't want to talk about sin because they just want to be sinful. And they don't want any rules. And they don't want a God who's telling them what to do. They just want to be selfish. And, and here's what I would say to that way of strawmanning non-religious people. You know, we're talking about repentance. Christians, religious-minded people, pick certain sins all the time. We have a tendency to elevate and want to talk about sins that others struggle with and we don't and focus on those 
and think that God is really against those sermons, and we just start to rationalize our own. And another reason why this is just unhelpful and untrue, it's because I am friends with a number of non-religious people, and many of them are some of the kindest and most generous people I know. And no one is saying we should live in a world without laws and rules and ethics. No one is espousing that. The question really is this. What is the authority? Who do we look to as the authority to shape our ethics and morals and rules? And if you're here this morning and you're someone who's maybe struggling with this concept of sin and and maybe you're here and you're just like, you're right, you know, let's just all do what we want. <laughs> you know, there's sin, we all do it. Might as well have fun. If that's where you're at, you know, I, I, I really, I, I would love to chat, but what I'm about to say really isn't for you. I would want to encourage you to, to consider another way of living. But who I do want to talk to you, if you're here and maybe you struggle with this idea of sin and you struggle with the idea of God and the Bible and authority, but you're someone who's very genuine, you, you want to help people, you want to be for justice, you want to have compassion on the poor. And you might admit you don't do it perfectly, but you desire that. Here's what I want to, I want you to, I want to challenge you to think this morning. If you are for justice and equality and care for the poor, what greater authority could you have than the Bible? The Bible, friends, is a book that is multi-generational. It is cross-cultural. And it has a theme throughout it that elevates the oppressed. At the core of the Bible is a God who wants to redeem to bring justice, to right the wrongs, to call out selfish, self-promoting, abusive behavior. The Bible elevates those who, whom power and systems oppress. And at the core of the Bible is a God who is so for justice, so for love, that he takes it upon himself to enter the world to experience injustice so that a broken and fallen humanity can have a whole new destiny. What greater authority can you look to? If we just make our authority for justice our present culture or our own opinions, man, we're, we're going to resort to power, to a to behaviors that seek to just correct power, and we're not going to be willing to give up power to elevate those who need it. The Bible presents an authority. David knows. He says, I have transgressed against God, God's law. Repentance invites us into a story where there is an authority to appeal for justice and wholeness. But also, how can you thrive? How can you find wholeness? You can thrive because you're free from shame to live in grace. Again, David, he begins, have mercy on me. And at the beginning, he's saying in verse 3, he says, my sin is ever before me. But notice the progression in the psalm. By verse 15, David now, he has a little more boldness. He says, O oh Lord, open my lips, 
my mouth will declare your praise. He begins talking to God. God, I have mercy. My sin, all I see is my sin. By the end, David's saying, God, send me into the world. I will tell of your praise, your grace. <laughs> Imagine David here. The, the voices of criticism that he would have internalized. There are, are always critics. There no doubt would have been critics in David's day. You can imagine, if we could imagine David over here, our leader, our king commits this wicked act, and now we look at him. You know, some, one voice of, one voice of criticism might be the hedonist who says, you know, David, come on. David, abandon this God pursuit. David, you have no credibility. You know, follow through with it, David. Execute Nathan and pursue a life that you want and give us all the freedom to do the same. The voice of the, the hedonist critic in our life that says, you know what, go all the way, make it just about you. Let go of this God pursuit. Who's that helping? Then you have the religious critic. David, Sinner, what authority do you have to praise God to teach me about what right sacrifice is about? We hear the critics, don't we? In these moments, the critic that says, look, just let go of God, do what you want. And the critic that says, you will never, you have no place now, unworthy, sinner, we need to hear the voice of God. The voice of God. You know, in the voice of God, he, God sends Nathan. God doesn't say, David, hey, you know what? It happens. It happens, Nathan or David. No, he sends Nathan to gently yet firmly confront David with what has happened. And he also offers forgiveness. He offers forgiveness. And so in our sin, in our, we can internalize the shame and the gospel frees us to internalize the voice of God's grace. That we're not defined by our sin, but we're defined by Jesus. And so we can respond in worship. A third way that we find whole healing and we can thrive is that genuine repentance enables us to live in reality. We can live in reality. Davis, David, in his response, he doesn't minimize the sin. He could have. He could have said, well, look, man, compared to other kings, my goodness, I do one thing, Nathan, and you come. No, I, yeah, I'm not perfect, okay, but gosh, there's other people who are worse. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't rationalize. Nathan, I'm under a lot of pressure. You know, we have these battles and wars. I, you know, man, I'm just a human. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't get defensive. Nathan, look at you. You think you're perfect? He doesn't ignore. David doesn't respond. Give me a new prophet. Give me a new preacher. Give me a new church. Give me a voice that will allow me to ignore something that's hard. No, he doesn't. Repentance allows us to live in reality. 
to be able to acknowledge, to see, and to grieve our selfish actions, to not just pit, place the blame on everyone else. David takes ownership. David li- lives in reality. And lastly, how does genuine repentance lead to, to thriving? You are able to pursue reconciliation with God and others. We are able to see and grieve our sin encourage and humility, and we are able to apologize to others. We are able to ask for God's forgiveness. It invites us into not just defensiveness and blame, but it invites us to a posture of love and reconciliation. Friends, let's be a people, when we think of repent, we just don't have the the sin of others. We just don't see the corner preacher with the sign, but we have the courage to see the gospel that we do fall short and we are more sinful than we could have imagined, but we are more loved in the work of Jesus than we could have ever dreamed. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge in these spaces um, there's probably a lot of different thoughts and feelings. Uh, We're tempted to live in shame and to hear that voice of Satan say, You are defined by what you have done. There's also a part of us, God, that is tempted to ignore, to minimize, to blame. Um, Because, God, we, we don't think that change is possible. We think we are who we are, and that's the end of the story. But God, like David... We are people who make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes are premeditated and egregious. And God, what we need is for you to give us a clean heart. That we just don't see our sin and be defined by our sin, but that we pursue you and pursue purity because that is where we flourish. That is where wholeness is found. It's in your grace, and it's in your calling that we love others, that we we turn away from anti-human flourishing behavior. We turn away from anti-God worship, and we love you, and we love our neighbors. So, God, forgive us and transform us, we pray. Amen.